This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Whenever an industry runs into trouble, and especially when it starts hemorrhaging jobs, demands for support and subsidies are heard. But does having an industrial policy really make sense? According to Howard Pack, a professor of business and public policy at Wharton, an interventionist government policy generally plays a limited role in bringing about an improvement. In fact, in some cases, government interventions can lead to harmful results, he adds. Howard, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I know we want to talk about uh, industrial policy today, and I wonder if we can start with uh, uh, an article that you were kind enough to send me from the Washington Post some time ago. Uh, the article said that Air India had <coughs> obtained cheap loans funded by U.S. taxpayers to buy aircraft, which it then used to launch nonstop flights between New York City and Mumbai. This created jobs for the Boeing workers, of course, who made the planes. But Delta Airlines, which had offered nonstop flights to India, could not stand up to that competition and had to discontinue those flights, which presumably harmed other U.S. workers. What, why does this happen, and, and what are the implications for industrial policy? Well, let's start at the beginning in the sense that industrial policy is a set of policies which either provide subsidies, as in this case of the Export-Import Bank, or uh, to firms that are currently producing or protect them from foreign competition in one way or another. So usually the uh, aim is to change the structure of production. In this case, uh, it's to encourage uh, the sale of Boeing planes, but as you point out, it has what economists usually call general equilibrium effects or what the economists will call knock-on effects, more general effects which are, uh, have a, a large number of implications for workers in other industries, such as in this case Delta. So the major effort here is to match, uh, to match uh, stimulus that comes from other countries. In this case, the U.S. is constantly trying to uh, help Boeing relative to Airbus. Airbus has been the beneficiary of huge numbers of subsidies from the, uh, some of the European countries that participate in the Airbus production. So the um, ultimate economic effects are very dubious because, as we point out, Delta employees um, or decrease number of Delta employees decreased. Uh, Airbus, uh, on the other hand, um, the number of employees at uh, Boeing goes up, and you're never sure about the total impact. But employment should not only be it should not be the only consideration because one consideration is clearly what is the effect on gross national product of the U.S. and uh, this kind of subsidy. Sim- usually has not uh, had a beneficial effect in the long run on the U.S. So the political pressures are quite clear. Henry Jackson, who used to be the senator from the state of Washington, was called the senator from Boeing. Very effective senior senator. And he was very good at protecting Boeing. Uh, Others are very good in protecting, say, the beet sugar industry. But most of the time, it's to the detriment of consumers uh, and taxpayers. So we, 
what we basically see is a set of political trade-offs without much in the way of careful attention to the economic effects. The economic, uh, we will come back in a bit to the economic effects. Uh, what are some of the traditional arguments in favor of having an industrial policy? Well, the standard arguments are there, there are some good arguments for industrial policy, which would basically be something like the following. Say a company undertakes research and development. The R&D leads to uh, unanticipated benefits for other sectors, which can then expand. There is then an argument for having R&D subsidies or perhaps uh, tax benefits for R&D, assuming that you can encourage more that you're not just rewarding existing R&D. So that would be one thing. And a second thing, uh, second meritorious argument is that firms provide training for workers for which they are not remunerated. Some of these workers go to other firms. If the f skills which they have acquired are of use to other firms, the, the firms to which they move are not going to pay the cost of the initial training. That would be an argument for training subsidies. So on the, in the lexicon of economists, these are uh, real external economies. There's an argument to be made to get involved in these. But the real problem is designing them very often becomes not uh, a matter of economic analysis, but blunderbuss approaches. So rather than giving a an R&D subsidy or a training subsidy, there's a demand for tariff protection for uh, for the firm or the industry, or generalized subsidies, which don't really target the specific uh, the specific goal that you're after. And so it has become a favorite in a lot of ways, and most often it's used to uh, justify what are perceived to be uh, improvements in employment opportunities. But very often these have relatively little merit, and they are very expensive for consumers. Now, what does the empirical evidence show? I mean, does it show that interventionist uh, industrial policy makes sense? I think the empirical evidence is pretty clearly against it. And the reason it would be against it is that it would assume that the government and government officials know the pattern of productivity growth in various sectors, which they can't possibly know because the participants in the sector don't, don't usually know them. The government can predict these things. And we know that that's pretty much impossible. So the usual examples of good industrial policy come from largely Japan in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, where it was asserted that the, um, that the gr rapid growth of the Japanese economy was attributable to government intervention helping some sectors and not others. But the empirical evidence pretty overwhelmingly shows that the sectors that were targeted positively by the Japanese government were often sunset sectors, not sunrise sectors, sectors which were declining, which political forces try to protect the existing sector. And at the same time, in the 1980s, there was a fairly widespread demand for uh, efforts to counter Japanese resurgence in the uh, semiconductor industry. And this was beaten back by a variety of forces. And since then, it, one can notice that Intel has done remarkably well, and the Japanese firms have basically had to abandon the field to 
either Korean firms or American firms, in this case, uh, Intel and AMD. So the evidence is pretty weak, and there has been a large amount of research in this on whether or not um, industrial policy can be a positive force for most economies. I mean, as, as we know, uh, the Japanese economy has been, you know, struggling for a while. Uh, given the track record that Japan had in having used industrial policy successfully in the past, why have they not been able to use industrial policy to revive the economy now? Well, the, the evidence is not very robust that they were able to use it effectively. For example, it's pretty well known among people who work on this stuff that the Japanese government discouraged the automakers in the 1950s and 60s, saying you'll never be able to compete with GM. And the sectors it, it did encourage uh, probably would have done quite well without the encouragement of the government. After all, the country, Sony is a very innovative company, or Sharp at that point, were very innovative companies. And the whole point of industrial policy is that the government has to anticipate which sectors will emerge internationally. In its early stages, Japan had some easy targets. It was coming out of World War II, most of its productive capacity had been destroyed, but it has to be remembered that as early as 1905, Japan was able to mount its own battleships and defeat Russia in the Russo-Japanese War in 1905. So that basically in the immediate post-World War II period, Japan was um, targeting specifically uh, American industries and say auto, uh, m most importantly iron and steel, but a few other industries in which it was able to borrow the technology, take uh, sign technology licensing agreements. And that was easy because it was a stable industry with stable production and fairly high growth in the world markets. But that has, you know, but to, to engage industrial policy now would mean that the Japanese officials would have to somehow figure out the innovation going, likely going on in the world and, say, compete with Facebook or Zynga. That's very unlikely, and it would not generate that many jobs. And it is arguable that industrial policy actually is partly, though not totally responsible, obviously, for Japan's stagnation of the past two decades, because Japanese banks did not have to evaluate loans. It was, they were told by the government which sectors to lend to. And what happened was that uh, once they ran into a crisis, the country ran into a crisis, the banks were more or less paralyzed in trying to figure out which uh, sectors, which firms to lend to. And so it's partly contributed to the uh, problems. Now, like, like Japan, uh, uh, Europe also is struggling mightily right now with its own economic uh, situation. Uh, given all the challenges that the Eurozone is facing, is there a case to be made where some form of industrial policy might help in securing the future of the Eurozone? I think the Eurozone problems really stem from a, a, a much different set of questions. Namely, the Eurozone assumed that by having one currency starting about 10 years ago, that most countries would fall into place. But we one knew at the time that there were vastly different productivity levels between, on the one hand, the northern countries like Germany and Austria and Holland, and the southern tier countries now referred to as pig, Portugal, uh, Italy, Greece, and Spain, and one could might throw in Ireland, I'm not so sure. And uh, if you take, to um, keep the example simple, the current problems in Greece, one of the problems is that 
the uh, introduction of the euro allowed Greece to tap low interest international loans. Uh, the Greek economy spent more than it was producing. That is, it was uh, had a large import surplus, imported more than it exported, and was able to finance that by low-cost borrowing. If Greece were not part of the EU, say it were Senegal or, uh, or Pakistan, it would go to the International Monetary Fund, and the IMF would tell it, you have to reduce spending in the country to free resources uh, for exports, and simultaneously you would have to devalue your currency so as to make your exporting more competitive or safe in the case of Greece to make tourism more attractive to people from Northern Europe because it will be cheaper, but Greece is no longer on the drachma, it's on the euro, and therefore can't do it. And I think the problems in, in Europe are basically uh, macroeconomic uh, in nature and not due to um, structural problems. There are some structural problems. They tend to be the rigidities in the labor market. So it's not an industrial policy one needs, but a, uh, a relaxation of some of the tight controls on labor mobility within the countries. Uh, would, you, would you say that emerging markets like China, India, and Brazil have been using industrial policy to some degree to drive their growth? And what lessons can be learned from, from those markets? Okay, so the simplest way to do it is India. India has had remarkable growth since one can pretty much date it since 1991. India was in a very bad um, situation, asked the International Monetary Fund for uh, guarantees and for, for loans. And India accepted IMF advice, which was partly formulated by Indian economists, that it should devalue its currency. Uh, take off limits on imports, quantitative restrictions, reduce its tariffs, and reduce industrial licensing. So what India did then could be called reverse industrial policy, dismantling the industrial policy which prevailed from 1947 till 1991. So that helped India a lot. And the runaway success stories in India in the IT sector, Infosys and YPRO, were basically based on the fact that the IITs, the Indian Institutes of Technology, had produced large numbers of graduates who were very good and relatively inexpensive to employ, and um, that had little to do with government pro-IT uh, pro, uh, policy by the government. Indeed, much of it was successful precisely because it could bypass the government. Satellite, which was very important for uploading and downloading programs, was put up by Texas Instrument, not the Indian government, although afterwards the Indian government ratified some of these things. So in the case of India, it's the dismantling of industrial policy rather than uh, industrial policy per se. Brazil, I think, is a different story. A lot of Brazilian growth has been based on on agricultural production, commodity production, and in some sense, it's, it's critically dependent on exports to China, for example, soybeans and others. It does have an industrial sector, but um, I defy you to go to Walmart and find an industrial product from, from Brazil. China is a different case. The Chinese government has obviously uh, tried very hard to build up specific sectors. It's had special economic zones, Shenzhen and other places. And there the, uh, there has been some success. A co-author, um, Justin Lin, who's a major uh, economic figure in China, who's, who's currently the uh, chief economist and vice president of the World Bank, uh, will argue 
correctly, I think, that industrial policy has been partly responsible for China's uh, success, though its national investment rate of over 40 percent does contribute to this success. But China is a very different story because it's so large that it is a very attractive target for foreign direct investment. And therefore, uh, it has been the beneficiary of huge amounts of FDI, and that has helped propel its growth. Another very interesting phenomenon is the growth of uh, global supply chains and production networks. How, how do they d influence industrial policy in developed markets? Well, in some sense, uh, that is a very important question, actually, because many countries, uh, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, but also in the Middle East and North Africa, have very small manufacturing uh, base. That is, in most of sub-Saharan Africa, countries uh, have a ratio of manufacturing employment to total employment of less than 10 percent. Same thing is true in Middle East and North Africa. And having worked on both recently, my understanding of it is that the countries really have a need for foreign direct investment to provide jobs in the short term. So the Arab Spring might have been uh, precluded had there been more rapid FDI uh, inflows into the countries. So becoming part of global, global uh, chains is very important. It's one of the few quick ways into uh, manufacturing because the firms, if they locate, will, bring, will pay for the investment, bring in the equipment, will bring in management and so on, and can provide a lot of jobs in the short term. The real problem is that uh, firms look all around the world, and currently wages in China are going up pretty rapidly. And it is possible some of the jobs that China will vacate on the low end of the spectrum will migrate to the Middle East and North Africa, cer certainly uh, to uh, Middle East and North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. But currently the evidence is going to Cambodia and Laos and other places in Asia because they have pretty disciplined labor forces. The workers are um, very diligent, and they're close enough to China so that they can interact a lot with Chinese suppliers of intermediate inputs. So potentially, these supply chains offer an important, an incredibly important opportunity for uh, African and Middle Eastern countries. But so far, it, the results have not um, suggested that many firms are interested in it. Well, uh, let's... Uh uh, have one final question. And uh, I think you've made a very compelling case that uh, the results from industrial policy are, are quite mixed uh, and, and there are strong grounds for skepticism uh, uh, against uh, being interventionist. Uh, in the absence of industrial policy, what can be done to deal with market failures? Well, if you bring up market failures, you know, sort of the kinds of things I was talking about earlier, namely, uh, Training takes place, firms pay for it, and then other firms benefit from it. You do need tax and subsidy policies, but you have to identify where the failure is and address the specific failure, whether or not it's R&D subsidy or tax benefits or training subsidies or, or benefits. And uh, But that is very different from general, generalized blunderbuss industrial policy where you say, let's protect an entire industry rather than try to target the particular sources of the market failure. Howard, thank you so much for speaking with us today. You're welcome. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, 
please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.